for me as a child, a more exciting time of the year than Christmas. And it really was for three reasons. Number one, I'm from central New York, so snow. We always wanted snow. It was, it was kind of a bleak Christmas if we woke up and there wasn't snow. I remember, I remember when I was a little boy, I think I was around nine or 10, and I'm the youngest of six kids, and my oldest is 10 years older than me. I remember waking up and we had had a foot or a foot and a half of snow the night before. And we woke up to all of this snow and I woke all of my siblings up at like six in the morning. They were not pleased, but I was so excited. So snow was one of the reasons I loved the time of Christmas. Number two, no school. I mean, that was awesome, right? No school. My mom was a teacher, so she enjoyed that as well. And the third reason that I loved Christmas as a child so much was, of course, gifts. My Uncle Foster and Aunt Winnie, is there anybody here named Winnie? Any guys named Winnie? All right, my Uncle Foster and Aunt Winnie came over every single Christmas Eve, and they had dinner with us, and I could not wait for them to leave. The moment that they left, I'd even help put their coats on. The, the moment they left, my mom would take us back to one of the bedrooms that we were not allowed in. It was locked for about three weeks previous to Christmas every year. And we would start hauling all of the Christmas gifts that were wrapped all the way out to the tree. And my mom was a gift giving mom. She loved to give gifts. I remember every Christmas, my dad, when he sees when he would see three to four feet of Christmas gifts all the way around this tree coming out from the, the base of the tree for about five feet all the way around, my dad would say to my mom, how much money did you spend this year? And almost always it ended in a little bit of an argument between the two of them. My mom was a gift giving mom. And there were two Christmas gifts that I got in my childhood that even to this day, I would say rank as my all-time favorite gifts. One was a potholder maker kit. I know, right? Weird. Here I am, bearded, brawny, manly, maybe not manly, bearded. I love that gift. I love making potholders. I don't know, maybe I have OCD and all that intricate weaving. I don't know what it was, but I loved making potholders and giving them to my mom and other people. But the all time favorite childhood gift was the Mattel Vertibird. It gave me endless hours of fun. In fact, so much fun that when it broke the next Christmas, my parents got it for me again. You know what, some of you are looking at me with blank faces. You don't really understand the joy. So I'm gonna show it to you in all of its magical glory through a video. Watch this. Announcing Bertie Bird, the new electric powered copter with rotor blades that actually lift it into flight and precision controls that make you the Bertie Bird's pilot. Use your piloting skills to perform even difficult rescues. Hover into position. You've got him. The Birdie Bird, the copter it takes you to fly. The Birdie Bird electric copter comes with space capsule, landing pad, life craft, and astronaut from Mattel. My all-time favorite Christmas gift. Listen, if you want to buy me one for Christmas, they're on eBay right now for about $800. 
because nobody makes them anymore, don't buy one. But that was my absolute favorite Christmas gift as a child. But you know, something happened when I became a parent. And parents, you'll understand this. Kids, you're going to understand it one day. The magic switched from gift getting to gift giving. And all of a sudden, nothing was better than on Christmas morning, watching the happiness of our children. Andy, the youngest of our four kids, has mastered gift getting. Now you might think, well, that's kind of self-centered. I don't mean it self-centeredly. He mastered the joy that someone would give him something. When he was a little boy, and this happened even up till maybe six years ago, and he's 18 now. When he was a little boy, he would always open his gift, jump to his feet, and run and leap into the arms of whoever gave it to him, and just squealing with joy. We have so many videos of it. It was just the greatest part of Christmas. For a parent, it is gift giving more than gift getting. Well, you know what? Gifts, I'm gonna bring this to the gospel. Gifts are the central meaning of the joy of Christmas. Do you realize that? Let me show it to you from the world's most famous, the Bible's most famous verse. For God so loved the world that he what? He's a gift giving God. But did you see the greatest gift he's ever given? It's not salvation. Oh, that's high. That's amazing. Listen, the greatest gift that God's ever given, it says here, is his son. It's Jesus. It's the greatest Christmas gift. We're going to find Christmas in a very unexpected place today as we look at another miracle in the book of 2 Kings. And each of the miracles that we're seeing, starting with last week and continuing all the way into Christmas Eve, are gifts given to those in great need. Remember last week we saw a school for the prophets of God in the beautiful, idyllic, stunning, beautiful city of Jericho. They were suffering. The city is beautiful. The city's in an incredible location, right? What's the mantra of real estate? Location, location, location. It was the best but the city was under a curse. And the water was a symbol of its curse because it came out, it sprang out toxic water, a quarter million gallons a day, undrinkable, unpotable. It led to miscarriages in women. It led to uh, making the ground infertile. It could not grow crops. So what did Elisha do? He said, bring me a new bowl a bowl never used before, and fill it with salt, and then he threw it into the spring. And it canceled the curse of God. It points forward to Jesus, the new bowl, means the Holy One of God, who is filled with salt, the metaphor in the Bible for the faithful covenant-keeping promises of God, whom Jesus in him is found the amen to all of God's promises. And when Jesus came, he reversed the curse. He took the curse of God on him so that we could be freed from that curse the moment you believe in him. And then he gives us the living waters of the Holy Spirit. Well, today we're gonna to see another miracle. It's another crisis brought to Elisha. And once again, he's going to give a gift and a gift that will show us the gospel, which is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? We're gonna read 2 Kings chapter four, verses one through seven. It's page 309, if you're using a pew Bible. Starting at verse one. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. 
And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind you, yourself and your sons and pour into all those vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him, shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. You may be seated. All right, as you are seated, here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see a problem. We're gonna see the solution and then we're gonna see the gospel. Let's start with the problem. We have a God-fearing prophet. He's one of the prophets in the school of prophets and Elisha is the seminary president. He died and when he died, he left his wife, not only a widow and his two sons fatherless, he left all three of them in a hopeless debt. And their merciless creditor, like the IRS, came calling and he's demanding to be paid back what he owes. Now a creditor is one who gives a loan to someone a debtor is the one who took out that loan. And debt is never, by the way, you want to know this, especially if you're thinking of getting married or if you're young in your marriage, you want to know that debt is never ever in the Bible put in a positive light. It's always, always negative. Here's one of many examples. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is a slave of the lender. The reason I said marriage, Young married, listen, or those wanting to be married, listen. Three reasons that are common why people go into counseling, relational conflict, sexual issues, financial problems. That's one of the big three. You want to know debt puts a chokehold on your life. I am so thankful that in our church, we have no debt. We have two buildings God has provided through your generous giving. I hope you continue to be generous, even more generous so that we could do more ministry. But if you are in debt, whether it's credit card, car payments, student loans, maybe all of them, you know it suffocates life. And we're not told why this family was in debt, but I do want you to note for a moment that we know that the husband who died was a God-fearing man. So I doubt very much that it was foolish and irresponsible debt. Let me show you what the problem was for almost all of Israel when they went into debt. Let me show you the reason that they went into debt. They are an agrarian society, meaning they're all farmers, almost all of them. They farm. One of the YouTube channels that I like to watch called Millennial Farmer. I love to watch and see how a big, huge farm in Minnesota farms. It's very, it's endlessly fascinating to me. They had a windstorm this past summer and it just knocked down acres and acres and acres of corn. 
Listen, when an Israelite went into debt, often the reason is because their crops were damaged. Maybe a swarm of locusts, like what still happens in Africa, came and devoured their crops. Maybe a, a, a fire stormed through their fields. Maybe a windstorm. Maybe the rain did not come. Maybe the soil just did not produce like it didn't in Jericho. Whatever the reason, if your crops don't grow and you are a, subsist a subsistent liver, you live off of the land, then now you're in debt. Here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to go find a wealthy person, take out a loan, and then you're legally obligated to repay it. They did not have federal bailout programs. They did not have social security for widows. They did not have banks. They had wealthy people, creditors, and you would come into debt because that's the only way you're gonna make it through that year. Whatever the reason, we're not told why, whatever the reason, the debt, the widow owed money that she could not repay, yet she's legally required to repay it. Here's her desperate situation. Do you know what most slavery in Israel was from? You cannot think of American history of slavery and understand Israel's slavery. Most slavery in Israel was from debt. When you're in debt to a creditor and you cannot repay it, you have to sell yourself to become their slave. You sell yourself into servitude and you work for that person until you work off the debt that you owe. Here's her desperate situation. She's faced with selling her two sons into servitude until those boys can earn the money to work off of her debt. Not only does she lose her husband, she's about to lose her children. Now you know what her emotional state was. Look what I'm gonna teach you at Hebrew word. She cried to Elisha. Look what it says. That Hebrew word means shrieked. She shrieked. This is a mother's wail that is about to lose her children. And to show how unable she is to repay this debt, Elisha asked her, what do you have in your house? And her answer was nothing except for one jar of olive oil. She is the poorest of the poor. Now you understand the problem. What's the remedy? What's the solution? Number two. Look at verse two. Then Elisha said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. You follow along as I paraphrase. She goes out with her boys. They collect all of these empty vessels. They bring them back into her house. She shuts the door. This was a private miracle. It was not to bring attention to Elisha. It's not to show boat prosperity gospel. This is a private miracle. And her boys would bring her the empty vessels. She took the vessel that she owned with oil, poured it into each one. When one was filled, she went to the next. When they were all filled, the oil stopped flowing from her jug. She goes back to Elisha. What do I do with this? This is a precious commodity. And Elisha said, go sell it and pay off your debt so your boys don't get sold into servitude. And then you've got enough left over to live on. That was the remedy, but I got to dig in a little bit more. In that culture, 
the breadwinner was nearly always the husband. And if he died, his wife would have no means to provide for herself or her family. But the law provided help. You see, the problem with the widow here is that she should never have been put into this desperate situation. The law of God provided from her. The first, the first place she turned was to any husband, her husband's brothers. If any of them were not married, it's the law of the kinsman redeemer. That brother would marry her, bring her in under his protection and provide for her and if she had children for them as well. Apparently her late husband had no brothers that were unmarried. So number two, you go to your extended family, read the book of 2 Timothy and you will find all about this. If you come to the church, our church at Cornerstone and you ask for benevolence help, one of the things that we're going to do with you just like Elisha did, what did you have in your home? What do you have that you can liquidate? But we're also gonna ask you, have you been to your extended family? Those are your first step. Family takes care of family. If you can't, then you come back to the church. In Israel, you would go to the kinsman redeemer. If that's not available, you go to extended family for help. If they cannot help, you go to your neighbors. And if nobody can help, then you go to the Levitical priest that lives in your towns. Every town had a Levite in it. And one of the jobs of the Levitical priests were to take care of the poor. Let me read to you one example from the scriptures. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing every three years, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the father, fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Now there are commands all through the Bible for this. There's four groups of people. The Levites were not to hold jobs. They were not to hold jobs. They were to be paid for and supported out of the giving of the people. And then the sojourner, Israel is a land bridge. You've got the Mediterranean Sea on one side, you've got the Arabian Desert on the other. It's a narrow strip of land and it connects what is north to what is south. If you're up in Syria and you wanna to go to Egypt, you've gotta travel through Israel. If you're in Egypt and you wanna to go to Assyria, you've gotta travel through Israel. So there's constantly sojourners, travelers, immigrants, foreigners, and the Bible commanded the church now, but the people of God then, you take care of the sojourner, you help provide for them, you give them a taste and see that the Lord is good. But not only the Levite, not only the sojourner, the, the orphans, the fatherless, those whose parents died, and also the widow. Every list of the people in the Old Testament you find to help you will find the widows. She should never have been in this desperate situation. People locked down their generous hearts. They became stingy. The unnamed widow came to Elisha believing. She had faith. 
Listen, you cannot overlook this. If she did not believe, if she did not have faith, she never would have come to Elijah. She would have been a destitute, poor widow losing her sons. She came to Elijah, a gesture of faith, believing that he could help her situation. He tells her, get as many empty jugs as you can from your neighbors, shut the door and start pouring from your oil into those empty jugs she did. It, they were filled with olive oil. Oil. Friends, listen, that's liquid gold. That's a precious commodity in that day. And she sold it and she paid off her debts and had enough to live on. Does this remind you? I mean, go forward from her day. Don't you see Jesus with a crowd of 5,000 Jewish men plus women and children, multiplying fish and loaves, feeding them all and there's enough left over. And then again with a crowd of 3,000 Gentile men with wives, with children, multiplying fish and loaves and there's enough left over. This is Elisha pointing forward to a greater Elisha, Jesus. You see, as incredible as this miracle of oil was for this widow, the purpose of it was to point forward to the coming one who will fill empty vessels with an oil from heaven, but it's going to take faith to see it. Look up at the screen. What do you see, a duck or a rabbit? What do you see? Keep looking. How many of you it's changing for you? All right, go to the point number three because none of you will listen while you're looking at the duck rabbit <laughs> or the ruck. Listen, you can read 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7, 20 times. But when you put the eyes of the gospel up, the binoculars of the gospel, you're gonna start seeing it and the picture begins to shift. And I'm gonna show you the shifting picture. We're gonna see the gospel point number three. The miracle of Elisha points forward to one who is greater than himself, who is going to come and take care of our debt. Now listen, I've gotta teach you something and I started last week and let me say it again. So I'm gonna underscore this, okay? If you go to seminary, you're gonna learn all about biblical typology. That's a big word, it's super simple. What it means is there are people and events and things all through the Old Testament that represent, they are shadows of the real one to come. They represent the one greater than them. So a type is a person, thing, or event that always points to something greater than itself. There's, they're all through the, the Old Testament and they all point specifically to Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus. But you've gotta get the eyes of the gospel to see them. You've gotta be able to see them what they really are pointing to. Here's what we see coming out of this passage. Every person has an unpayable debt of sin and an unbreakable obligation to God to pay it. You have an incalculable debt, moral debt to God, and you have an unbreakable obligation to repay it. Nobody gets exempt from this. And God will never ever say, well, just let bygones be bygones. I'll give you a mulligan. He cannot say that, or he is not just. He cannot say that, or he is not holy. He is impeccably, infinitely, perfectly just, and he is holy. Every single sin of a created human being must pay it. 
by the person who commits it. But here's the problem. And this is one of the main things I do as a pastor. The problem is this, that if I were to ask you, I want you to think of your last five sins. You're almost always going to think behaviorally. Things that I did, maybe I lost my temper, or I said something I shouldn't have said, I gossiped. You're gonna say things that I did that I shouldn't have done, or things that I knew I should have done, but I didn't. You're gonna reduce sin to behavior. But there's a sin below the sin, and the sin below your sin is in your heart. And the gospel has to get that deep, or you're never gonna get your debt paid. The sin below the sin is this, I really like the throne. And I, I say to God, move over or get off. I'm going to rule my world. And so when I slander somebody, I'm really saying, God, you're not letting your justice fall on that person. So let me pound the hammer. Let me pound the gavel. Let me pronounce their guilt. And I slander. And I slander to reduce them all the while to elevate myself in self-righteousness. That's an attack to God. The sin below the sin always goes vertical, and that's where the spring called our heart has a problem. And it gushes out wrong behavior. So don't stop at the behavior sin level. You gotta get to the sin below the sin, the sin that's in your heart. The heart desires and needs and demands and lusts they gush out the things that we should have done and we didn't and the things we shouldn't have done and we did. But I'm not yet done because somebody here might be thinking or somebody listening to this on the internet might be thinking, well, if I just do enough morally good things, I can tip the scales back in my favor. Let me tell you what's wrong with that thinking. Let's say that you've got a neighbor in need and you write out or take over a, a cash gift and pay for that need. And you think maybe that's one more on that scale, one more good moral thing that I did and it's going to start tipping in my favor where God says, well, I've gotta give you salvation. I've gotta give you my favor. You've done enough good things to earn it. Let me tell you the problem with that is that you just paid, let's say $100 for your neighbor's need, which was morally awesome, that's great. We should do things like that. But you know what God would have done? He who was rich became poor so that you could become rich. Did you make yourself poor? Did you give that neighbor everything you had? Did you deplete your resources? Did you leave yourself with nothing so that you lived in utter dependence on your heavenly father? That's what Jesus did. If you want to morally earn your way to heaven, you've got to every moment of your life, you've got to reach the moral infinite goodness of God and the very best that you and I can do, stop short of it. We are in incalculable debt and yet we have an unbreakable legal requirement to pay it. But we've got good news. 
You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here it is, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So it has everything to do with the cross. All of our debt, the moment you believe, the more you come, the moment you come to the Elisha, the new Elisha, Jesus, in faith, Jesus not only forgives the debt that you have accrued, your incalculable debt, he gives you life, which is seen in the oil. Let's talk about the oil. Oil in the Bible is almost always a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Oil is almost always a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Here's one of many examples, 1 Samuel 16. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. So you see a link between oil, olive oil, and the spirit of the Lord. And Jesus, here's the gospel, Jesus will supply the oil. Here's how he does it. The one who comes to him as an empty vessel, I'm gonna tell you that in a minute, comes to him in faith. Jesus sends the spirit of God to fill the empty vessel of their heart. The only requirement, you've gotta be empty. The only requirement to be filled, you must be empty. It is an empty vessel which will turn vertical to God in faith. If you're even one quarter full of self-confidence in your own goodness, if you've got even one third a cup of your own confidence in your power, your own sufficiency, you cannot be filled. You cannot be saved from your debt of sin. You must be empty. The beatitude, you must be poor in spirit. That means an empty vessel. If you've got self-confidence, self-insurance, you're gonna lack the power, Christian, of the spirit in your life. If you're not a believer, if you're not an empty vessel, you cannot be saved. You must have a desperate humility in your heart. The spirit of God will only fill the empty vessels, but every empty vessel he will fill no matter how many. So imagine this for a moment. Imagine that the sons of the widow go to a neighbor and the neighbor knows her plight. Her neighbor knows her husband died. Her neighbor knows she's poor. And she hands a jug that's got about half full of oil to the boy and say, just tell your mom to take it, it's my gift. And he takes the half-filled vessel into the home and shuts the door with all the other empty vessels and she's pouring and filling, pouring and filling. And then the boy hands to her the half-full vessel and she goes to pour and from her jug, nothing comes out and she's shaking it. Why is nothing coming out? And she looks down into the mouth of the jug and finds there's already oil in it. God will not fill any vessel that is not empty, but he will fill every vessel that is. You see, an empty vessel is someone who knows their incalculable debt and their unbreakable demand to repay their great need of salvation. Doesn't, don't you remember like the wine that Jesus made from, from uh, water at the wedding of Cana and John? This oil 
Like that wine was the best oil anyone could have. You know how they made oil? They would take the olive trees, which almost always grew on a slope, and they would put the press at the bottom of the slope because it's a lot easier to bring the olive baskets down. So you've got all these baskets full of olives. You bring it to the press. You put the, actually, you put the whole basket in the, in the press and the press crushes it. And when it crushes it, it squeezes out the oil and it's called the first fruits. It's the extra virgin olive oil. Some of it was taken to the temple for an offering and the rest of it was enjoyed. But then they pressed it again. The second pressing, after they shook the basket a little bit, they would press it again. Now that oil, which was not of the quality of the first one, was used for cosmetics, food, perfume, medicine. You know how ladies deodorized themselves back then, right? They, they took a flask of second pressed olive oil or fragrance or any kind of uh, myrrh or frankincense and they would fill it and they would dab it around their body. They would wear it around their neck on a rope and they would uncork it, dab it around their body and then stop it back up, put it underneath their, their, their robe. But then they pressed it a third and final time and the third oil pressing was used for oil lamps and soap. This is the best oil. The oil in the vessels the widow filled was supernaturally produced oil. It's the best for the best. Jesus is searching for empty vessels and when he finds them, he fills the needy searching sinner who knows they're incalculably in debt, who knows the unbreakable bond to repay it, who knows their desperate need of salvation and he fills them with the oil of the spirit of God. It is the best oil imaginable. Now, are you seeing the joyful news of Christmas yet. Let me bring you home, I'm almost done. This is the reason, friends. Jesus came to earth and was born as a babe into humanity. And when he grew up and when he launched his public ministry, he gave a sermon and in his sermon, these are his words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to fill widows' vessels with oil and pay off their debt. And it leaves me to end with two questions, and I think they're very, very important ones. And can I please address the first question to anybody here or anybody listening who has not yet been filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. You've not yet become a Christian. Can I encourage you to understand your plight? You are in an incalculable moral debt to your creator. You have said to him, I will rule my life. I do not want you doing it for me. You are a defier, you are a rebel, a cosmic rebel against God. We've all been there. You're not where any of us have never been. We've all been there. 
But what you have done and what we have all done, you have created for yourself an unpayable debt, yet there is an obligation, you must pay it. So God did something for you. He sent Jesus to be born as a baby and to grow up and never once did he accrue a moral debt. He infinitely kept the law all the way to the holiness, perfection of God every single time. And he died on that cross, a perfect substitute for you. He became sin so that you could know the righteousness of God. At the moment you come to the new Elisha, the moment that you come in faith, he will tell you how you can be saved and it will always be by the death, burial, resurrection of himself. He paid your debts so that you could be free, ransomed, redeemed. And then he will fill you with the greatest oil of joy you've ever had, and that is the Spirit of God, who will dwell in you for the rest of eternity. Why would you not come to Jesus? But the other and my final question, and then I'll be done, is actually for the church, for the Christian who is here. If you've already had your debt paid and you've already been filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit, do you know why we can read and why it's in the Bible, 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7? It's to move us to our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates and our families who are not filled, who are empty vessels, and to begin pouring oil into them, showing them why Jesus came, giving them the real reason for this season, proclaiming the good news of the person and the work of Jesus. We are to take the jug of oil that you've got because you are filled with the Spirit. You are the jug of oil. And the more that you confront and love and speak and witness and share to your unsaved, you're giving them an opportunity to see they are in an unpayable, incalculable, debt and they've got an unbreakable obligation to pay it and that brings them to the point of being empty and the moment they are empty you can begin to pour into them that's what we do that's what we all do so I'm going to end with this two quick things number one in your mind's eye right now who are you thinking of who needs to hear about the oil of the Holy Spirit. Who are you thinking? Whose face comes to mind? Was it a neighbor? Was it a coworker, a classmate, a friend, a family member? That's the person you go to during this Christmas season. And how will we do that? Let me tell you four things as we close. This will take seconds. Pause, slow down. Read the Bible with the eyes of the gospel. Reflect on it. Let it build within you a desire to worship, which means serve our great God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this miracle. Lord, we have so much to learn from your word. And Lord, it's so exciting to see it. And Lord, I pray, Father, that we would be moved to leave this church, this service, 
And whether it is to reach out through an email or a phone call or getting together with that person to share with them how they could be filled with the oil of the Spirit of God and have joy and purpose in their life. Lord, we are the vessels through whom you work to fill those who are empty around us. May we be that vessel. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.